Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. And welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. This week we are in New Hampshire. It is Vermont's upside down cousin. <laughs> or possibly Vermont is its upside down cousin. I'm not sure. I'll leave that to Vermont and New Hampshire to sort out. Yeah, they can sort that out. But really, the states look pretty much the same, just upside down. It's true. It's true. It's the state that has the face, well, had the face of the mountain, the old man of the mountain. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's almost on the state quarters, too, and it's kind of sad because it collapsed. <laughs> oh, God. It's like, oh, that's right. I forgot. I actually pulled something up for this uh, with, like, weird state laws in New Hampshire. Yeah, hit me. I'm curious. Okay, this is from WOKQ.com. Okay. So I'm assuming it's some news thing. Sure, we'll go with that. And it's... Did you know this is illegal in New Hampshire? Question mark. <laughs> Did you know it is illegal to operate machinery on Sunday? Mm, all machinery? Like I guess. Mm, that's what, that's actually kind of nice if you think so, about it. So like you it. can't mow your lawn, you can't. Uh, well, I mean, it makes the perfect Sunday lion because you could just sleep and no one's out there. It does. That's perfect. I like that. I mean, so do people who have like jobs using machinery? They get the day off. Get the day. Yeah. Day rest. If you go to the beach. Here's that you can collect all of the shells you want, but don't touch the seaweed. It's a crime to remove seaweed from the beach. Okay. Why? Weird, but sure. Whatever, New Hampshire. They love their coastline, so maybe, maybe that's why? Apparently, you cannot also tap your toes while listening to music in a tavern, restaurant, or cafe. You'll get arrested. <laughs> and apparently that was a quicker article than I thought, because that's it. Well, those are certainly weird things. And uh, I guess I will have a humdrum time in a tavern or cafe. You can hum, but you can't drum. Remember that. You can hum, but you can't drum. It's like click it or ticket. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we start, I would like to talk about a real life horror story that happened to me. Are you okay? I'm, I'm fine. Well, I mean, okay. I might be emotionally scarred for life. But um, so there's this movie on Netflix Oh, what the hell is it called? Always Be My Maybe. No, it's this new like Tyler Perry, supposed to be like a crime drama. Okay. I forget what it's called now. By Tyler Perry. But yeah, I didn't know it was Tyler Perry going into it. Is this about like uh, like the woman has it all? It's like uh, there's like this lawyer who normally just does plea deals. Oh, yeah. I watched two seconds of that trailer and then I clicked on Sabrina. Oh, yeah, that was probably a smart <laughs> choice because I didn't realize it was Tyler Perry going into it. I was like, okay, well, this movie looks good. Let's watch it. And then I was like, Tyler Perry, what am I getting into? Oh, you know what? I'll give it a shot. Well, it is not a gritty crime drama filled with lawyers and courtroom stuff. Is it a comedy? No. Oh. It's mostly the story of a woman in an abusive relationship who then thinks she killed her husband. Okay. Um, it's weird. They kind of like just blow through all the court stuff and it's more about their love story in the beginning (laughs) and it's kind of like really boring through most of it. And then there's just so many laughable moments. Like the cop who is the lawyer's boyfriend handcuffs this one woman is just like, stay here. Why would you not handcuff her to something so she can't move? Like, are you that inept (laughs) at your freaking job? That's Um, kind of amazing, actually. (laughs) The lawyer who normally just does the plea deals, this is like her first time in an actual courtroom. They would have put someone on those. She would have been like first or second chair. She wouldn't have been the main person or she at least would have had someone backing her. And you still need to go into a courtroom to do a plea deal. Yeah, true. You still have to represent your client. True. But like I'm saying like her first time in like actual court court. Oh, like trying something. Yeah. Mm. 
So it was well. just she was completely inept. She just did not know what she was doing. And it like, was like, look, they this, didn't they didn't have money to pay an extra actor. Yeah, to this be would that not person. freaking happen in real life at all. It was the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my life. The whole time I was like, this was not what I wanted because I ran out of how to get away with murder episodes to watch. So oh, I wanted something else courtroomy. I could see the disappointment then. And I was very, very disappointed. I hope you thumbed down it. Um, I don't know that I can do that. Can I? Yeah, at the bottom of the Netflix entry, it should have a little like rating thing, and you just thumb up or thumb down. Oh. And then it won't recommend trash like that to you ever again. Good, yes. Don't recommend Tyler Perry, because apparently I don't get it. Trash. Yeah, completely I'm sure trash. some of those movies are good. I'm sure there are some decent ones. My one friend, Jamila at work, loves like the Medea movies. Pretty much anything with a cross-dresser, that's a Tyler Perry movie. <laughs> Is it Tyler Perry cross-dressing? Most likely. Oh, man, he's got a lot of Medea movies out there. There's a shit ton of Medea movies. Medea mm-hmm. mm. goes to jail. Medea something about being scared. Mm-hmm. Other Medeas. Other Medeas. <laughs> oh, Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Yes, that one. That was pretty good. Uh, he was in Star Trek. He was in Star Trek. Apparently as Admiral Barnett. The first of the new ones? Yeah, the first of the reboot. Okay, that's the only reboot ones that I've seen. Oh, pre- oh no, he was no, okay. Precious was like he did something. He produced it. Okay. Oh, I've never seen Precious. It's it's pretty good. I heard it's good and I Cry. like um the actress whose name I can't say. Gabourey Sidibe. Okay. Gabourey. I know cuz my friend had to teach me how to say it. Oh, really? He got so pissed at me cuz I kept mispronouncing it. I was just like Queenie. I know. I'm like what the Queenie? He's like Gabourey. Say it with me now. Uh, anyway. All right. New Hampshire. <laughs> yes. New Hampshire. So where are we going in New Hampshire? Well, this week I'll be taking you to Allenstown, New Hampshire. Wait, that sounds suspiciously familiar. Yeah, that's because it sounds like Allentown, Pennsylvania. Yes, it does. But it's not Allentown. It's Allenstown. And although some of my story does take place in other places and even other states such as California. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's Allenstown that I'll be talking about. Okay. So Allenstown, New Hampshire is located in Merrimack County, which is in more of the south central part of the state and is the third most populous county in New Hampshire. It was named after its provincial governor, Samuel Allen. This town is or perhaps was, I don't know what it does now, but it was a big industrial area and had a lot to do with railroads, apparently. It's also been nicknamed La Petite Canada because there was a major influx of French Canadians at one time. You know, it's kind of funny. Hmm. Uh, I only know one person who grew up in New Hampshire and she grew up in Merrimack, which sounds like it's pretty close to this area. Yeah. And she was French Canadian. Oh, okay. That works. <laughs> so Going with the theme. All spot on so far. Perfect. So one part of this town that we will be exploring uh, the most is called Bear Brook State Park, which is one of the state's largest state parks, being around 10,000 acres in total. There's lots of beautiful trees, camping spots, picnic areas, 40 miles of hiking trails, and Bear Brook, its namesake, which is a brook running through the park. It is also a place where grisly murders took place at the hands of a man known as the Chameleon Killer. What? Yeah, this is actually a really cool story, and apparently there's an entire podcast on it, which I found out after I started the story. So this is the abridged version, guys, but it's still pretty long. <laughs> All um, right, so I can I can just listen to this story that you're going to tell me versus spending hours 
listening to another podcast? Yes. Sign me up. And the really weird thing about Allenstown, even though it has part of, you know, this 10,000 acre um, state park on Mm -hmm. it, it's a very tiny town. Hmm. Uh, So I'm going to start by saying the story was difficult to write and to decide how exactly to go about the timeline. So I figured I'd jump around a bit and it was strangely the best way to tell the story. Uh, We're going to start um, in, oh, I just wrote 185, but I'm assuming that's supposed to be 1985, (laughs) in Bear Brook State Park and the tiny town of Allenstown. Allenstown is actually quite small, like I just said, and most of the town is actually taken up by the state park. There's a trailer park right next to Bear Brook where at least one of the three boys I'm going to talk about briefly lived. Their names are Jesse, Scott, and Keith, and they like to play in the park. They would play this game very similar to hide-and-seek, with the only difference being that the boys were on four-wheelers. Okay. So, you know, less walking. Yeah, a little bit more, you know, rough and tumble. Exactly. Uh, One person would hide while the others drove around looking for them. Well, during this game, one of the boys, who was probably Keith but might not have been, finds this 50-gallon steel drum. Oh, feeling deja vu yet? Yeah, um, there's there better not be a braid in that barrel. <laughs> if you guys have listened to New York Part One, you'll know where we're going with this. <laughs> uh, so Keith tells the other boys about this barrel and they try to open the lid, but it really doesn't budge much. There's a smell that the children relate to spoiled milk coming from the barrel. Ooh. Yeah. They get fed up with trying to open it and kick the barrel over. The lid opens just a little bit more, and there's like a bag sticking out of it, and something white starts to ooze out. How old are these boys? Did you mention that? No. um, I don't know. I'd say they're probably like preteen or younger. Okay. Because you figure if they can drive like the ATVs, they have to be probably like... I'm like, in my head, I'm picturing like 12 or 13-year-olds. I'm imagining... Stand by me Yes. Okay. Stand by me was what I thought of with this too. Because... I forget what it was in the podcast when they were talking about it, uh, but they said something like, this isn't a movie, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, it's kind of like Stand By Me is what I was thinking. <laughs> so yeah, this white liquid starts to ooze out of this barrel. Again, the boys think that it is spoiled milk and just kind of say, this is gross. Let's go home. Um, they do just that and don't really say anything about the barrel. Later, a hunter ends up calling the police around November of 1985 and tells them about this barrel and says there might be a body inside. Mm. The man looked very pale when the police saw him, and he didn't want to go toward the barrel with them. The police decide to check this out and are able to get the lid off, and the officer, his name was Ron, I believe his last name was Mont Pleasure, which is really weird. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, just could immediately sense that there was a body inside. Like, he just knew. Mm. Inside the barrel was the nude skeletal remains of not one, but two women who were tied with electrical wire. Oh, my God. There was This was such a small town that the police force was quite scarce, and they needed more people to help them to set the perimeter so they could, you know, mm-hmm. do their job. So they went to the house where Jesse lived and decided to deputize his father to come and help. When this happened, his mother asked, is this about the barrel? Because I guess Jesse had told her about it. Okay. Um, upon further investigation into these bodies... They conclude the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. 
They also figured due to decomp that the bodies could have been in the barrel from anywhere between six months to a few years or more without being found. Wow. Just in the woods the whole time. Just in the woods, in that barrel the entire time. (laughs) The detectives used the phrase uh, when they wanted to talk to people to get information. Uh, They would say, let's go fishing. (laughs) They said they had certain good fishing spots where they knew people might talk to them. Usually they'd be able to get something, but this time, however, they found absolutely nothing. So all of their normal sources were like, I don't know. Just like, I don't know what happened. I know nothing about barrels. Yeah. Uh, It wasn't like shooting fish in a barrel. No, it was absolutely not. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty bad. The two women found were presumed to be a mother and a daughter. The mother was determined to be between 23 and 33 with curly or wavy brown hair. Uh, She was white with Native American ancestry and to be somewhere between 5'2 and 5'7. She also had had extensive dental work with three extractions and multiple fillings. Hmm. The younger girl was thought to be between 5 and 11 years old with brown hair uh, between 4'3 and 4'6. And she had symptoms of pneumonia And had a space between her two front teeth. Hmm. They figured with the dental work on the first Jane Doe that maybe they should check dental records, which turned up absolutely freaking nothing. They then looked at the records for the campgrounds, which also turned up nothing. So it wasn't looking great for them right now. Uh, Like I said, these bodies had been there for a while. And most of the time, if you don't find something in the first 48 hours, you aren't going to find anything. Okay. So... You know, this had been a long time until they even found the bodies. In 1986, they made composite sketches of what they assumed the two victims would have looked like, but this didn't really turn much up either. And in 1987, they finally released the bodies for burial. And as they still had no idea who these people were and no one had claimed the bodies, they were buried together in a single steel casket. The gravestone reads, quote, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God, of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10, 1985, in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. Hmm. So that's really depressing. Yes, very much so. I'm already kind of bummed out. Yeah. At this point, the case had gone completely cold and nothing more happens again until the case is picked back up in the year 2000. When it goes to a state trooper by the name of John Cody, who picks up where the others left off. And it's in this year that something very unexpected happens. Hmm. So nothing for 15 years. Yeah, nothing for 15 years. And let me tell you right now, they're not going to get much farther. Spoiler. Yeah. Back in Bearbrook State Park, where Officer Cody was retracing the previous investigator's steps, only about 300 feet from where the bodies were found, he finds an identical 50-gallon steel drum containing two more bodies. What? Yep. I did not I did not see that coming. Nope. He calls it in after, you know, pulling away some of the plastic and thinks that he sees a bone mm. sticking out. When he calls his superiors to tell them about it, they don't even believe him at first. What? Cuz it sounds like crazy, you know. Yeah, yeah. These bodies were much like the first two as they couldn't be identified either. So both were young girls. One was approximately two to four years old, and the other was approximately one to three years old. So they're like, they're basically babies, like toddlers. Very, very small. 
you might be asking a few different questions at this point. Um, the most immediate of which being, how did they not find these bodies if the two barrels were only 300 feet from one another? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a very simple explanation for that. First off, the police force was so small, as I had mentioned earlier, that they had to actually deputize citizens just to set the perimeter. So less manpower means less things being able to get done, and also untrained civilians doing some of the work means they're probably not going to do as much as trained police officers would. Gotcha. So maybe they don't understand the best way to search would be like the setting up a grid system and True. kind of sticking to it. It's more of like, hey guys, look for anything. Look for stuff. Unusual. Yeah. Uh, another reason for not finding the barrels sooner is that although it was only 300 feet away, Bearbrook State Park is filled with dense, dense forests. So 300 feet of open space isn't much, but 300 feet of nothing but trees is a completely different story. That's fair. The other question you might be asking is, why haven't they found a single answer when it's been 15 freaking years already? That answer is a little more difficult to come by, but we do know that there was another nearby murder the day before they found the first barrel. Oh. Yeah. This one was in Hooksit, right around the state park. Uh, his name was Danny Paquette, and he was found shot dead in his garage. Initially, they thought this was a hunting accident because of the close proximity to the woods, but then later realized that it was murder. For a while, they entertained the idea that he was also killed by whoever killed the women in the barrel, mm -hmm. but that turned out not to be the case. There's only an average of 15 murders a year in the entire state. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this was just so unusual that there were immediately more answers in you know danny paquette's case so more man hours went to that instead because they like knew who he was they kind of figure out who yeah they, they knew he dead. had some enemies too like he had like a black book and oh. all this stuff and yeah so so basically the resources that they could have put towards trying to figure out who these women or girls were in the barrel went to this other case yeah okay because they figured this was a much more recent murder mm -hmm. they can actually the catch somebody yeah yeah um, this case too ended up going cold until the late nineties though. Wow. Yeah. They had given up completely on it and decided that it was what they had initially thought just a hunting accident, but eventually learned, uh, Paquette was shot by his stepdaughter's friend. Fun fact, Nicole, since you love when I do these <laughs> in 2016, the killer in that case tried to get his sentence shortened because he felt 10 years was enough time, even though he had all those free years from when they thought that he had gotten away with it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So he's just like, oh, guys, I'm done. Can I go home now? So I think we had a good, pretty good run. Yeah. And I would really like <laughs> to go home. Exactly. Yeah. So a few years after these bodies were found, they did some DNA tests. And although it didn't help identify them, they did learn that the two from the first barrel and the youngest from the second were all related um, and the other one shared no DNA with the other children. That's odd, because I was expecting that maybe it was somebody, maybe like a family annihilator situation, right? Yeah, they assumed this was a family, and just that the other mm. one might have been adopted. Okay. Um, or like, you know, like a stepdaughter, something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here we are, 15 years later at this point, and there's still not a single suspect even. There ended up being a genealogist... Uh, that caught wind of this case. Uh, her name was Rhonda Randall, and she helped people find their biological parents. She was also a social worker, but that's not the important part here. Okay. 
She became very interested in this case, and even though she wasn't really interested in true crime, she wanted to find the identities of these children. She starts asking around about the case and the people involved, and she decides to interview some locals who were there you know, at the time. And oddly enough, most of them didn't know about the second barrel at all. Mm-hmm. Some even argued with her, saying, like, uh, I lived here. I think I would freaking know. And she's like, I would have heard about that second barrel. Yeah, exactly. And she's just like, "Uh, well, there was a second barrel. So So here's the police report. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When looking around either the trailer park or the state park, I don't remember which, uh, but she ends up finding a child's shoe and just holds onto it for years. She never really finds anything to identify these bodies. And it turns out that the shoe had nothing to do with the crime at all. But she just kept it as like kind of like a reminder. Yeah, like her totem. Yes. Also to help with the identification process, they actually had a geologist come on, which sounds weird because they study rocks and such. But due to isotopes, which he studied, uh, he was able to tell more basic information on the victims, such as where they were from. Because things like, you know, drinking water and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You can, like, figure out, like, based on, like, the bones and teeth and all the, like, the materials. Cool. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. So he was able to find some more information. Uh, The women uh, later discovered it around 2014 to be the children's mother. They were found uh, by isotope testing to be from the general area in which they were found. Whereas the unrelated girl was found to be from Texas, Arizona, California, or Oregon. Weird. Yeah. So not even close. Yeah. So they were just really like, who are these people? Now we're going to jump to 1999 in California. Okay. I know it sounds weird, but bear with me for a minute. All of this will end up being connected, I swear. I want to talk about a woman named Unsun Jun and her new boyfriend, Larry Vanner. Unsun was in her mid-40s and had always had some trouble meeting men. The night I'm going to talk about was around New Year's Eve, and she was going to introduce her new man to her cousin, whom she also considered a close friend. They were very close. Okay. Uh, her cousin was hosting a little party, and she was so excited that, you know, when she heard that Unsun finally met someone... And, you know, she couldn't wait to meet him. However, expectations really didn't match up with reality at all. <laughs> wow. That's totally one of those things where it's like, I can't wait to meet my new boyfriend. I'm so excited. Oh. Oh, yeah. And this He's was definitely an, uh, okay, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're happy. Exactly. Yeah. Good, good for you. Uh, so in the podcast that I listened to as part of my research here, the cousin mentioned that the two pulled up in a dirty white cargo van with no windows. Sexy. Yeah. It's like a child molester van. Like, it's creepy. She said this guy gave her just the worst vibes right from the beginning. He had these long, dirty fingernails, and he was just not what she expected at all. But Nsun seemed happy, so that was what was important to her, at least. Okay. So they were talking later on, and she tried to ask him about himself, and he was kind of dodging her questions. And she asked him what he did, and he just sort of said that he was a retired colonel. The cousin then tries to be friendly and said, you know, my boss is also a retired colonel, and you guys seem to be about the same age. Maybe you know each other. This is when Vanner got very serious and said to her, don't ever question me or ask me anything about my past. 
Whoa. Then just like red flag. Yep. She even said that was the first red flag right there. Yeah. (laughs) But then just like a light switch, he went back to being amicable. Hmm. He also said other crazy shit that night. But Unsen's cousin was still just happy that she found someone. Although now, of course, a little worried as well. Mm-hmm. She did later on try to warn Unsun about him, but Unsun didn't want to hear it, thinking no one wanted her to be happy, which I know I've done before when someone told me that someone I was seeing was bad news, because mm-hmm. that's just the kind of thing you kind of need to learn for yourself. No matter how much it sucks, you're not going to believe someone else when they're like, this guy's bad. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for Unsun and her family, this would be a lesson that she would learn far too late as this was the last time that she and her cousin spoke or saw each other. There was a friend who would constantly call and try to speak with Unsun, but she would always get Larry instead. Damn it, Larry. I do not like Larry. That is a good name to be mad at, though. It is. It's a good name to say in anger. Just like Carl. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... He always gives these excuses of why she can't come to the phone, like she's out, you know, here or there, or she only stopped home for a minute and didn't have time to talk right then. So Renee Rose, this friend, gets fed up with this and gives Larry an ultimatum, saying that she's going on vacation and that if Unsun hasn't left her a message on her machine by the time she gets back, that she's going to call the police. Okay. This was back in 2002 now, by the way. So they've been together for three years. All right, so he's like, they're pretty well-established relationship-wise. Yeah, uh, at this time, Unsun and Larry Vanner have moved in together, and they were, you know, quote-unquote married, just not legally. Mm -hmm. There was no paperwork, so it sounds fishy. That's because it is. (laughs) He was brought in for questioning about Unsun's whereabouts then, after she had called the police on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was able to watch the tape of this interview on YouTube. He is... Just a very, very weird man in general. Hmm. He doesn't really answer any of the questions that he's asked and is just saying weird shit through most of it. So I guess Hmm. I'll show it to you when we take our break. Okay. I'm Um, intrigued. Yeah, it's weird. The really good thing about this, though, is that now that now they had his prince. Mm, That's true. And they find out that he has this long criminal record, but not under the name Larry Vanner. I'm not surprised. This guy has not one, not two, but like a million different aliases. He was arrested in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1980 under the name Bob Evans. Of course, that's a fake name (laughs) um, for writing bad checks. And then again, the same year for theft of services because he was diverting electrical current. Okay. In 1984, he started going by the name of Curtis Kimball and was arrested for DUI in Los Alamitos, California. He had started using the name Gordon Jensen and had abandoned his daughter when living in a trailer park in Santa Cruz County. So he was wanted for that as well. Hmm. Uh, In 1988, he was pulled over driving a stolen vehicle in California, and this vehicle was from Idaho. This time he gave the name Jerry Mockerman. He was finally arrested for the child abandonment in 1989 and sentenced to three years in prison but was paroled after one year, and he just vanished again after that. Yeah, not surprising. Not surprising at all. When asked, he told the police that Unsun was in Oregon because she had suffered a mental breakdown, but he didn't want to talk about it because, quote, you're not my priest, you're not my doctor, end quote. Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah, that was his response. He's like, I'm not going to talk anymore about me or Unsoon right now. Yeah. <laughs> he was very, very strange. He just kept saying all these weird stuff. There was something about like, you're a fireman or I, this something like, if you blah, 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 you're the, it was weird. I don't remember, but it was just bizarre. So, but I'll tell you more about the video then later where to find it and stuff. So he doesn't give them the doctor's number, but they do find him calling the number of the doctor in Oregon. So they're able to get it that way. They can't just come out and get the information from this doctor because of confidentiality, as you know. Mm -hmm. I've lived this experience in both my work in mental health and as a secretary at the Drug and Alcohol Center. So believe me when I say this shit is very serious. They take that really seriously. Every time someone calls to ask a question, you need to make sure that you have a current release of information for them or your ass is in major trouble. So they find a way around this, though. And just ask the doctor if he is treating anyone matching Unsun's description. Okay. He says no. So now the police know that this story is complete bullshit. The good thing about now knowing his background was since he had violated his parole by running away in 1990, that meant that they didn't need a warrant and could just go ahead and search his home. I didn't know that. That makes sense, though. Yeah. Uh, which unfortunately is where they found Nsun in the basement. Was she dead? <gasps> it started when they found a dead kitten. Oh. As I cover Salem's ears, um, started when they found a dead kitten that looked like it had been thrown over the fence. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then they found disturbed soil in the shed, like someone had tried to dig a hole. Okay. Because it was like a dirt floor shed. Yeah. Uh, they moved into the shed. Uh, and from there, they found Unsun's pottery studio. Okay. In uh, there lay the basement slash crawl space area with another dirt floor. They find a three foot tall pile of cat litter, and Unsun's body was underneath. Weird. Weird thing about this is that her body was practically mummified from the cat litter. Yeah, it makes sense. It's like, you know, clay and it yeah. sops up moisture. Yeah. Uh, so she had also been bludgeoned and then dismembered. <gasps> okay. That was not what I was picturing. And now I'm a little gross. Yeah, of course. He's obviously arrested at this point, uh, not only for the parole violation, but also then for the murder of Unsun Jun. Okay. He initially pleads not guilty to the murder charge. But on day two of the trial, he decides to change his plea to guilty. This sentence was 15 years to life, so this seems really fishy, since most people don't plead guilty to murder without some sort of plea deal. Hmm. Like, this just doesn't happen. The theory on why is that he may have overheard them talking about how they were trying to look into his past and find out more about him, including the abandonment of his five-year-old daughter at the trailer park. Well, this makes them even more suspicious, so they really start looking into this daughter, whose name was Lisa. Okay. They did a DNA test on Lisa against Larry's DNA, or whoever, whatever name he's going by at this point. Right. There was no match. She's not Uh, even his daughter. uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. This girl, who was supposed to be his daughter, was never his freaking daughter. What is going on? Yeah. Where did this girl come from? Yeah. We don't know who he is or what his real name is and now we have Mari saying you are not the father Mm -hmm. so 
He goes to jail and ends up dying there in 2010 of natural causes at age 67. This was at High Desert Prison in Susanville, California. Now you might be saying, great, he's dead, and he took any bit of sense this might make with him. Sort of, but not quite. Oh. In 2017, they found out something crazy. There was a woman by the name of Denise Bowden who had gone missing in 1981 along with her child and boyfriend, whose name was Bob fucking Evans. What? She hadn't even been reported missing until 2016 when they learned the identity of her daughter, the little girl who was with Bob, Larry, Jerry, and any of the other names. Okay. So Lisa was really this woman's daughter. Okay. And the last time her mother was seen was 1981. Correct. Okay. When she was like five, six months old. Okay. I may be getting some of this part confused, so do your own research and fact check me if you want, but that's pretty much what happened at least. Uh, So that's the identity of the little girl. Uh, The girl was only six months when her mother disappeared. We do not know her real name as she wants to keep it a secret to avoid the press. That's fair. Yeah, I would probably do the same thing. So 2017 was also when they released the video of the police interview that I watched. And they were finally able to identify Bob Evans slash Curtis Kimball slash Gordon Jensen slash Larry Vanner slash Jerry Mockerman as Terry Petter Rasmussen. Say that name again for me. Terry Petter Rasmussen. Okay. P-E-D-E-R. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It could be Peter. It could be Petter. I don't know. Okay. Rasmussen. 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 Think Mucin X with a Ras before it and no X at the end. Okay. (laughs) Rasmussen. Okay. I got it. Thanks. You're welcome. Now, we can finally go back to Allenstown, and I can wrap up this incredibly crazy story because it wasn't until very recently that they were able to link him to the Bearbrook murders. Rasmussen came to New Hampshire in the late 70s and began working at one of the old mill buildings, removing electrical equipment, working for a man named Ed Gallagher, who owns the building where the Bearbrook camp store used to be, which is where the barrels were found. Okay. So around that property. All right. The plastic bags I had mentioned in the barrels with the bodies, they were tied with what? I think I mentioned it before. Electrical cable. Electrical wire. Yeah. All the victims were also bludgeoned just like Unsoon, which is the only person at that time that they knew that he had killed. So in 2019, they were also finally able to identify the victims in the barrels. The mother was identified as Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch, whom had also dated Rasmussen. She disappeared around Thanksgiving. And her daughters, Mary Elizabeth Vaughn and Sarah Lynn McWaters. The other victims still hadn't been identified at this point, but through DNA, knowing what we know now, it turns out that she was actually Rasmussen's daughter. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The really cool thing about how they were able to solve this case was for some of the DNA work they used ancestry data which is what inspired them to do the same thing with the golden state killer oh so this was the first case that was solved like that in my notes i made uh for myself while listening to the podcast i used for part of my research i had just written down grass mushrooms (laughs) uh because i you know thought to myself how could i ever forget what that could mean i forgot what that meant (laughs) i had no idea what was going on well yeah I had to go back and listen to a bit of it again to try to find it. Remember how I said uh, Lisa, the daughter that wasn't Rasmussen's daughter, 
had been with him since 1981. Yes. Well, since these murders happened in 1985, that meant that she was with him at the time of these murders. Uh-oh. When she was brought in after being abandoned, the police asked her if she had any siblings. She told them that she did, but they died while camping from eating grass mushrooms. Uh, camping? Oh. Bearbrook State Park, possibly? Yep. yep. Boom. So I'm pretty sure that's the end of my crazy-ass story for this week. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it, and I also hope that you now understand why this story took me so long, Nicole, to write for my notes. Yeah, it's definitely um, all over the place. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because I feel like there were certain points where as the case got older, there would be a breakthrough, but then... But then still nothing. Yeah, something wouldn't quite make sense, which is very intriguing. Yeah, it's like we have a little bit more and a little bit more mm-hmm. and a little bit more. But it, from 1985 all the way to last year. Yeah, that's crazy. To finally be able to completely solve this. The other thing that strikes me uh, about this story is it must be extremely difficult to be a police officer in more rural, isolated communities. Oh, yeah. Because it's like you and like the night shift guy. Yeah. So, because you have your tiny ass police mm-hmm. force or sheriff's department, whatever. It's crazy. And then you have your state police, but they're normally doing other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are you going to do? Rough, rough job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my sources for this week were the Bear Brook podcast. Uh, it was a huge help. There was a lot of information there that I couldn't find anywhere else. And I left out a great deal of information because that's like seven episodes long. It <laughs> took me five hours to listen to all of it. So, wow. I also used Wikipedia, as always, unionleader.com, newyorktimes.com, wmur.com, which is a news site, reallifevillains.fandom.com, YouTube, veterandoe.com, and a website I accidentally clicked off of and couldn't find again to properly cite, so sorry about that one. <laughs> Ugh, so many tabs. So I know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for sharing that story. Uh, I, I liked it quite a bit. I think it was a little bit different. It was um, a big mind fuck. So like yeah. my brain hurt after doing these notes. I understand. I understand why. Uh, well, I guess we'll take a short break and then I'll come back uh, for my, I'll say paranormal story okay. for this week. We'll say paranormal. Sounds good to me. All right. See everybody in a bit. And we are back. Um, during the break, I was able to find that interview video again, and you need to type in Larry Vanner interview because I tried typing in Terry Rasmussen and it was nothing. So Larry Vanner is the name that you want to use if you're looking for the interview. And Nicole watched about half of it and was just like, I can't, he's too weird. He's too weird. (laughs) Too, too weird. Oh, now Salem's on Nicole. I know. I was like, what's that little, oh, hi buddy. (laughs) He's like, can I read your notes? I know. He's like, I want to be on this table. I want to get into your business. <laughs> Good thing you're cute. Oh, I know. All right. I'm super excited for this story today, by the way, because I think it's the first one of uh, its type that we've covered on the show. Oh, nice. So let me dive in. Dive right in. Our stop today is in Lincoln, New Hampshire. It's a small town of about 1,600 people situated in the White Mountains. Lincoln's home to a portion of Franconia Notch State Park, which is home to the Old Man of the Mountain Historical Site. So, There's a lot of notches. Yes, there are. There are. I guess a notch is kind of like a break in the mountains. Yeah. But the Old Man of the Mountain, that's that granite face. 
Okay, the one that you're talking about. Yeah. And I guess it did collapse back in 2003. That's just sad. It is sad. It was near Lincoln on Route 3, where Barney and Betty Hill reported a life-altering experience. Barney and Betty? Barney and Betty. Okay. It's very Flintstone. Were Fred and Wilma also there? (laughs) (laughs) Different Barney and Betty. They experienced quite the incident in 1961. So... He's on my lap now. <laughs> <laughs> Moving around. Hot potato kitten. <laughs> Barney and Betty Hill lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, about two hours from Lincoln. Barney was a World War II veteran who worked the night shift at the post office. Betty, a graduate of the University of New Hampshire, was a social worker who handled child welfare cases. Okay. The Hills, who were an interracial couple at the time when their marriage was considered illegal in 16 U.S. states. I was about to say, what year is this? 1961. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh, They were both active in their local Unitarian church and in the civil rights movement, of course. Yeah. Uh, They were members of the NAACP, and Barney, who was black, also sat on the local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. I didn't expect Barney to be black, but I think it's because I'm imagining the Flintstone character, so (laughs) he's blonde and kind of boxy. All right. <laughs> so in September of 1961, the busy couple finally decided to take some time out of their busy schedule to go on an impromptu vacation slash belated honeymoon. They decided to go to Niagara Falls and visit Montreal. Oh, nice. Yeah. On the night of September 19th, 1961, the tired couple climbed back into their 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air for the long drive back to Portsmouth. Around 10.30 p.m., they observed a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and the planet Jupiter upwards to the western side of the moon. It looked like a falling star, but got brighter and brighter with each mile that the hills traveled. Ooh, I think we're getting into alien territory here. Maybe. Barney assumed that it was an off-course satellite, but Betty noticed that the point of light was also moving erratically kind of zigzagging around the sky, dropping in and out of view behind the mountaintops as they drove. They weren't sure if the movement of the car was causing an optical illusion for their tired eyes, so the Hills decided to pull into a scenic picnic spot just south of Twin Mountain. Through binoculars, Betty saw that the white light was actually a spinning object with multicolored lights on it. Passing the binoculars to Barney, he looked, and he said he was pretty sure it might just be a commercial airliner. Huh, okay. I don't think they spin. They don't spin. Or at least they're not supposed to. But I guess he didn't quite see the same thing she saw. Oh, okay. And they were both pretty tired because they kind of had this impromptu vacation. They did a lot of stuff. And it was a lot of stuff kind of crammed into like a three or four day weekend. Yeah. So I, I've definitely been there where it's like, was that a deer? No, that I'm just tired. No, I love when I see people in the middle of the road that aren't actually there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like, you know what? I think it's just a plane. We're just tired. And then, as he's looking through the binoculars, he see the he sees the object turn and start descending rapidly in their direction. Oh, shit. Okay. So they scramble back into the car and continue driving down Route 3 towards Lincoln, New Hampshire. As they head into the Franconia Notch, which is a very narrow mountain pass, Barney has to slow the car as they drive through because it's a pretty twisty, windy mountain road. The object continues to follow them. Then suddenly, about one mile south of the Indian Head hiking trail, the object quickly descends and Barney stops the car to watch. It hovers about 80 to 100 feet off the ground in a field towards the side of the road. Barney decides to investigate, so he reaches under his seat, 
grabs the handgun that he kept in the car for protection and shoves it into his pocket before exiting the idling car. He walks to the side of the road and looks through the binoculars. What he saw was an object as big as a jet plane, but as round and flat as a pancake. As Barney peered through his binoculars again, so he'd get a closer look without getting any closer physically, he sees that there's rows of windows, and standing in the windows appear to be gray uniformed beings looking directly at him. Okay. He tries to lift his hand to his pistol, but somehow couldn't. Do you know that um, the phrase little green men came from this one incident where people said they saw aliens, and it was a misquote? Really? And they're actually gray? Huh. Yeah. I did not know that. But then they decided they may have been owls. Okay. Yeah, it was really weird because apparently owls have like full on legs when they run and it looks really creepy. Have Um, you seen the meme where it's like the owl is like looking all majestic and then like the like the handler comes over and like lifts their plumage and it's just these creepy little like alien legs. I've seen them run and I actually like looked away in terror and it's weird. Very odd. They think that might have been what this family saw the one night when they were like, aliens have descended upon our house. Yeah. So (laughs) owls. But yeah, that's where the little green men thing came from when they weren't even green. So That's so good. That's so, so good. Now, I don't think Barney saw owls, though. However, he does notice that as he's looking through binoculars, all the beings, except for one of them, walk away from the windows. And then a long structure descends from the bottom of the object. At that point, Barney's like, uh, we got to go and runs back to the car. A little panicked because he's pretty sure that whatever is in that craft is going to try to capture Betty and himself. So he slams the car into drive, takes off. He starts speeding down these mountain roads, telling Betty to keep an eye on the object as he drives. So she rolls down the window and leans out to try and locate the object. Suddenly, both of the hills hear a series of but beeps or buzzing noises coming from the trunk of their car. I thought you said butt beeps for a but second. Beep, boop, boop. That's called a fart. <laughs> that that a is called beep. a fart. You're right. <laughs> so they hear buzzing and beeps coming from the trunk of their car, and they immediately feel drowsy and they lose consciousness. The next thing they remember is a second series of beeps or buzzings that wake them up. They look around and realize that they have traveled 35 miles down the road without knowing it. Oh, shit. I have heard this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that almost two hours has mysteriously passed. Yep. The hills drive home. They reach Portsmouth around dawn. Betty and Barney were understandably totally freaked out by what they witnessed and by the time they lost. Yeah, I would be too. I think any sane person would be. They noticed that both of their watches stopped working. God, it must have taken Barney and Betty really long time to drive since they had to pedal with their feet. (laughs) (laughs) They had to. Uh, can you imagine me when I was writing this? I'm just like, Barney and Betty, chuckle, chuckle. Yeah, exactly. That's how I would be. I'd be like, every single time. So a couple of weird things they notice once they get home, totally freaked out. Their watches don't work. They stop working completely. The strap on the binoculars was torn. The toes of Barney's shoes are all scraped and scuffed. The hem of Betty's dress was torn. And there were these shiny concentric circles on the trunk, on the top of the trunk. Okay of their car they hadn't been there before so basically like these round marks on the finish of the paint weird uh neither of them could remember if they did something or something had occurred that might cause that damage it was just kind of unexplained yeah in the following months the hills were plagued by anxiety related to this ufo encounter uh shortly after their experience betty started having these extremely vivid dreams 
the dreams are always the same and it basically was betty's experience of being abducted by short human being like aliens in blue uniforms with grayish skin black hair dark eyes very prominent noses and bluish lips huh okay so she starts having these and she they're super vivid and they start about i think she said like a week or so after the incident uh in her dreams the beings march her and an entranced barney through the woods they board a metallic disc shaped craft and she is separated from barney She's then examined by relatively friendly beings who answer most of her questions about why she and Barney are there, so who she they can understand are. understand them? Yes. The way she described it, it was almost like telepathy. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Like the aliens in her dreams were speaking some language that she didn't understand, but when she would talk to them directly, they would communicate with her somehow telepathically. Yeah. This goes along with a lot of other stories mm-hmm. that I've heard like this. So yeah, there could be some truth to it. I'm definitely... I'm not going to say that I, you know, I'm all about aliens or anything like that, but I definitely believe that they do exist because how weird is it to think that we are the only living thing out in the entire freaking galaxy or universe, you know? True, true. Now, Betty's dreams all end the same way. They finish the exam. Her and Barney are reunited and then escorted from the craft, and then she wakes up. Okay. So she has this dream, like, repeatedly over the course of, like, five or six nights and it's always the same it's extremely vivid almost like she's reliving it over the next couple of years the hills slowly start to share this experience in the hopes that it would alleviate some of their mental distress and help them remember what the hell happened when they lost those two missing hours they first share their story with their local unitarian congregation after a guest speaker gives a talk on hypnosis and they think maybe hypnosis could help us remember what happened So they talk to the guest speaker, and he encourages them to contact some of the hypnotherapists he knows for a consultation. In 1964, the Hills meet with a psychiatrist and neurologist who specialized in hypnosis named Benjamin Simon. Though Simon didn't think the Hills had encountered aliens, he did think that the Hills were distressed and that that they genuinely thought that they saw a UFO with human-like occupants. So he basically thought that they were crazy. Well, no, he, I think he just thought that, you know, these people clearly are suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, like at this point, Barney has like so much anxiety. He's starting to develop stomach ulcers. Betty's having trouble sleeping at night. They're just very like overly stressed out, like very, um, I can't think of the right word. Like almost like they're suffering from, from anxiety, like unnecessary anxiety. anxiety yeah. And it, they feel that it's being caused by this experience they have that they can't remember. Okay. And Simons is kind of like, well, I know you may think that that's what's causing it. And I'm more than willing to work with you to get to the root of what's causing this distress in your life because I want you to not suffer anymore. And he's kind of like, you can think that, but I I don't know what it is. I can't say one way or another until we go through our therapy sessions. So Simon says, all right, let's do this. Hopefully by talking out and going through hypnosis, we can help reduce some of this anxiety for you too. And in January of 1964, he starts conducting weekly hypnosis sessions with Barney and Betty, and he does it separately with each of them. Over the course of these sessions, the Hills begin to tell similar narratives when they're in a hypnotic state. They say they were taken aboard a saucer-like craft and placed in separate exam rooms. They were stripped and examined. Samples of their hair, fingernails, and skin were taken. And they had long needles connected to wires inserted into their heads their arms their legs their spine and um other areas oh okay so like anal probe yeah the butt the butt stuff in the butt what what in the butt Mm Mm-hmm. 
Now, during their hypnosis sessions, both of the Hills explain symptoms of extreme anxiety and distress, sometimes panicking and just crying, just tears streaming down their face with such intensity that Simon just ends the session because they're obviously freaked out and having maybe an anxiety attack. Yeah. And he is just like, wow, we need to get to the bottom of this. I don't know if this actually happened or what. As they continue these hypnosis sessions, uh, the information revealed helped solidify for the Hills that they were abducted by these alien beings. And the reason they think it's it's a story that what happened to them is because their descriptions of what happened that night are extremely similar. And it's, you know, Betty in her session telling the story. And then it's Barney telling a similar story in his individual session, too. Yeah. And after each session, they remember more and more of the events that happened to them. But the story overall is not changing. It's just like there's more things that are being added to it. Yep. But the basic story is still the same. Basic story is still the same. It's just finer details, like what kind of tests were done, like what the aliens said to them or didn't say to them, that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. By 1965, the press has picked up on the story. While they weren't the first people to talk about being abducted by aliens, the Hills were the first people to become celebrities about it. And their tale would end up providing a format for many other abduction stories. Okay. Yeah, so I can see that. makes sense why you're like, oh, this sounds very familiar. It's yeah. because this was the first really well-publicized version. There was even a 1974 TV movie called The UFO Incident. Oh, okay. And it's all about their experience. And the Hills were played by, get this, James Earl Jones and Estella Parsons. I know the name Estella Parsons, but I don't... She, I always think of her as... Uh, on Roseanne, she was Roseanne and Jackie's mom. Oh. Yeah, she's Bev. Oh, yeah. okay. I definitely know who she is now. Yeah, she's, a, she's like a more of a stage actress, I guess. But yeah. But James Earl Jones. Yes. So Very now, nice. After I found that out and I was able to find a pretty okay quality version of the film on YouTube, um, I had to watch. I didn't watch all of it. I watched most of it. Yeah. The acting's amazing. Really? But the story is a little hokey and there's like lots of flashbacks and they touch on like being like an interracial couple a lot, which is really cool. And yeah. also it's freaking James Earl Jones. Exactly. So now the whole time I'm like picturing him as Barney as I'm like writing the rest of the story. <laughs> I'm like, it's just got so much better. See, I'm just imagining the old Bell Atlantic or Bell South commercials. <laughs> And then, of course, you know, Luke, I am your father. You exactly. Know. Darth Vader. Mm, love it. So jumping back to 1966, the Hills and Simon start to work with an author named John G. Fuller to produce a book about their experience entitled The Interrupted Journey. Aside from their abduction narrative, the book also contains a star map that Betty sketched after a hypnosis session where she recalled asking one of the beings where they're from. The map was later identified by amateur astronomer as the Zeta Reticuli system. And the Hill abduction is sometimes referred to as the Zeta Reticuli incident. The Hills continue to speak about their encounter. Fortunately, Barney Hill died of a cerebral hemorrhage on February 25th, 1969 at the age of 46. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Betty would continue to live to the ripe old age of 85 and never remarry. She continued to be active in the UFO community, writing several more books and sharing many more alien encounter stories over the years. There were some things that I read where people were like, yeah, she pretty much saw aliens everywhere towards oh, the end. No. But I think that's just, you know, somebody who's probably lonely. And and she probably also was a little traumatized by the experience, even though yeah, it doesn't sure. seem like like they hurt her. But mm -hmm. it's still that would still be a very awkward thing. Like, very distressing. I don't want people taking me on their spaceship and shoving things up my butt. So. Mm -hmm. 
So now the question really is what really happened to the Hills? What caused these two respectable civil servants active in their communities to experience such stress and anxiety? Well, Simon, their hypnotherapist, seems to think that the story the Hills told was inspired by Betty's dream, which she definitely shared with Barney after she had them, since the incident happened a couple of years prior to their hypnotherapy sessions. So he thinks that by Betty sharing her dream and talking to Barney about it, it also became rooted in his subconscious as well. So when they were under hypnosis, that's why they both have very similar matching stories. Later psychologists would speculate that their stress and anxiety was due to the normal pressures of their very demanding jobs. Their and also raising Bam Bam. Raising Bam Bam. That little kid gets into everything. He does. Their status as an interracial couple in the 1960s. Which, yeah, I could see that being yeah. a thing. Even in New Hampshire, uh, it would be difficult. Despite it being a northern state, it's also overwhelmingly white. That's true. So they definitely were unique among their friends and family, probably. And also general anxiety that was present in a lot of Americans due to the Cold War with the USSR. So that's really why psychologists think they had so much anxiety and it kind of manifested as this UFO encounter. Well, a lot of the alien stuff, well, first of all, they a lot of people believe that like the the spacecrafts that they think they find mm-hmm. with the UFOs um, are from Russia. Like and, spy planes and yes. stuff. Yes. And then also there's this big parallel between aliens and communism. I don't really know why, but it is like this weird mm-hmm. thing, almost like it's like, allegory or something i don't know yeah it's like a way of like exploring something you're scared of in a different way yeah that makes sense there are a lot of skeptics and refutations of the hills incidents obviously so aside from the psychological analysis of the hills that i already talked about their experience has also been the subject of debate among scientists for years So scientists have pointed out that Betty's star map is closer to a random alignment of points. There's even an episode of The Cosmos where Carl Sagan famously demonstrates that without the lines, Betty's star map doesn't look anything like a real map of Zeta Reticuli. Okay. It just kind of was like... Here's a bunch of dots on a page. Yeah. And it was almost like people wanting to see it. Yeah. Other skeptics have pointed out that the Hill's description of the beings that abducted them strongly resembles the way that aliens were depicted in a 1964 episode of the TV show, The Outer Limits. Barney first mentions this description, um, and it was a very distinctive appearance, almost like wrap around the side of the head eyes. Okay. In a hypnosis session that occurred about 12 days after the episode aired. And the interesting thing about that was the Hills said, no, we don't watch that program. We didn't see it. Yeah. But a lot of sci-fi like chroniclers are like, oh, that was the first time that that depiction of aliens was ever used visually. Yeah. So they kind of think that maybe it was something subconscious that that they saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it came through in their in their hypnotherapy sessions. Uh, the other piece of data that skeptics cite is that there's no correlating reports of an object being spotted on radar in the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book records. If you're not familiar with Project Blue Book, it was a bunch of studies that the government did through the U.S. Air Force in the 1950s and 60s to basically catalog reports of UFOs yeah. so that the government could scientifically analyze any UFO-related data. And it has nothing to do with Kelly Blue Book. Exactly. It's not going to tell you how much that UFO is worth. I mean, never mind. <laughs> it's gently used. Um, 
so the blue book would like basically like okay someone would call and report i saw something suspicious in the skies i think it's a ufo the air force would catalog it check their radar records and they were basically trying to determine if these ufo sightings were like you said maybe spy planes if it was a threat to national security and there is honestly a lot of reports of ufos Mm -hmm. from the air force well, yeah, I mean, they're the ones in the sky. Yeah, so, so. Like, they, like everything that I've seen on TV where it was like some sort of special on UFOs, it's always like military, military, military mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, if you're interested, the History Channel has this show called Project Blue Book. It's in its second season and it's really entertaining because it kind of goes through and it's like, yep, we we cataloged all of this scientifically. Oh, and we, I'll have to check that out. And it's cool because they kind of like, of course, being the History Channel, they kind of give you that like, or oh, was it aliens moment? But oh, it's, yeah. it's super cool. Uh, just all the different incidents that happened across the country. Okay. So, Eden, what do you think about the Hill incident? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I definitely think they saw something and I think something happened. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of it, because I don't know. I don't know that I like hypnotherapy. Yeah, it's problematic, yeah, I think. Because just like people who take, you know, truth serum. Mm-hmm. They're very much likely to be under the suggestion of whoever's doing the therapy. Like how many false memories are recovered mm-hmm. in people who like think they were raped. Yeah. It's, you know, it's very problematic. Or, or like all of those, um, like the satanic panic. Like yeah. there's a satanic cult at this childcare facility, that sort of stuff where it's that suggestibility. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like hypnotherapy is definitely a useful therapeutic tool, but it's not like the human mind isn't a recorder. Exactly. It's going to like spit out whatever it needs to spit out to make sense of its situation. Not necessarily yeah. like what actually happened. Oh, that's right. We talked about hypnotism um, back when we were doing, what was it Rhode Island? Yeah. Yes, Rhode, Island, Rhode Island, which had mm-hmm. all those cold cases that all had a and hypnotist the very, involved. Yes. The very unique uh, police resources. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I definitely think they saw something. I don't know if maybe them, even though they said they didn't see that program mm-hmm. on TV, maybe they heard about it in passing. Maybe they saw it while flipping through channels. You never mm-hmm. know. So maybe it could have influenced the way they saw things. And just because you remember something wrong doesn't mean that you don't remember it at the same time. Yeah, I think there's. I think there's a lot, a lot to unpack with the Hill incident. I, I agree with you. I think it's kind of statistically unlikely to think that we're the only life yeah. in the universe. But does that other life come visit us? I, I don't, don't know. know. Yeah, exactly. That's my thing, too. Like, why would they want to come here? And why do they always abduct really dumb people, it seems like? <laughs> so it's just, it's kind of weird. Um, but think about it. There's, like, how many planets? How mm-hmm. many solar systems? How many, you know, all this stuff out there? It's, it's more statistically big, likely. Big universe. Yeah, it's more statistically likely that we're not alone than what we are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's it's arrogant to think that we are the only Agreed. bit of life out there I, I do think i agree with you i think the hills probably saw something but i i think that they probably did have a lot of pressure in their lives they worked very hard they had very demanding stressful jobs at a stressful time in our, our nation's history and like you said Being, interracial couple in the 60s yeah that's, that's a, a big deal yeah i think it's 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 one of those things where it's very easy in retrospect to see where all the stress could be coming from in their life and I do think part of their hypnotherapy results were driven by the fact that, you know, between the incident and the first therapy session, it was three years. And in that time, they had started trying to piece things together themselves. 
there's a couple things I read where it's like, well, Betty's sister had recently given her a book about other alien sightings. Yeah. They had started talking to other people who uh, was, it, I think it's called kneecap or kneecap. And I C a P and they're basically oh. like they, they track uh, UFO experiences and they believe that Does aliens sound are real. familiar. So maybe they yeah. started talking to those folks who were like, Oh, tell us more about your incident. Like blah, blah, blah. So I think it was sort of one of those things where, they said something happened to them and it kind of snowballed. So by the time they actually had the therapy sessions, they already sort of had this narrative of what happened to them in their heads. And it just sort of came out fully when they were under under therapy. But I think they believed it. And I yeah. mean, they w- were outspoken about it. And I think it's cool that they were. They didn't like just keep it bundled up. Also, I think it's kind of interesting that they became celebrities. Yeah. And like Barney was on TV and stuff. Like he was on uh, To Tell the Truth, I think that game. Oh, show. wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. I love To Tell the Truth. And it's kind of cool because you think about like these are people who normally wouldn't like it's this interracial couple being like, yeah, this happened to us. We're normal everyday Americans. So it's this weird visibility thing I think is kind of cool. But yeah, I don't know about aliens. I don't know. It's possible. It could just be something else. I don't know. Funny thing about how you said about like the interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it was normally referred to as a mixed marriage. And my mom said, back in the 50s, your father and I would have had a mixed marriage because he's Catholic and I'm Protestant. <laughs> and I mean, it's true because that was like a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents got married in a Catholic church because that's what my grandmother wanted. And um, I was baptized twice because <laughs> I had to be baptized Catholic and then also baptized Protestant. Just in case. It covers Just all in those case. Bases. So I really won't go to limbo because, you know, I'm, I'm doubly baptized. <laughs> Um, although I was told in second grade by my teacher when I was like, I had fun. I went to a different church this weekend. And then she's like, which church did you go to? And I told her, she's like, that's a Protestant church. I'm like, yeah, my mom's Protestant. It's like, do you know that's a sin on your soul and you're going to hell? That's as bad as not going to church at all. That's so terrible to tell a little Second kid. grade. That's and terrible. I was told I was going to hell because I went to the wrong type of church. You know what's funny? Uh, my mom and I were just talking recently and she was telling me about, you know, growing up in like, you know, the 60s, going to yeah. Catholic school. Because we were talking about, you know, should you give your kids a religious education or not? And she was like, well, I think it all depends on how they do it. And she told the story about how when she was little, she would come home and her mom, like my grandmother was raised um, Protestant as well. Yeah. She eventually converted to Catholicism. But my mom would come home and like talk to her mom, my grandmother, and just be like, mom, I don't, I don't, I'm worried about your soul. I don't want you to go to hell. (laughs) And my grandma was very fond of saying, I don't think anybody worried more about my soul than you did when you were little. Uh, that's great. <laughs> but it's, 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 yeah, very interesting that that yeah. would be a mixed marriage too. Yeah. Cause I know that you were also a Catholic school kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh God. Let's, let's not send our kids to Catholic school ever. I have moderately okay penmanship to this day. <laughs> <laughs> my problem was that I was always like, I tried to be so neat with my handwriting so I would write slower. But then of course... The kids would make fun of me for writing slowly. So then I had to write fast. And then when it came out chicken scratch, the nuns wanted to beat me. Like unsatisfactory. Yeah. Like, what do I do? (laughs) And kids in Catholic school are mean listeners if you did not go to Catholic school. Catholic school has some mean, mean kids. I mean, when you can't express yourself because you have to wear a uniform. Oh, that's true, too. You express yourself through bullying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also they would judge you on the shoes you wore then. Oh, yeah. It becomes microscopic, right? It's like, what kind of earrings do you have in today? Exactly. Your ears aren't pierced. Oh, mine are. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm, Good times. Good times. Uh, Well, now that we went off on a tangent, (laughs) I guess we should plug stuff. Well, first, let me go through my sources. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's okay. 
Uh, so, of course, uh, for this one, I started my research on good old Wikipedia. I used a couple episodes of Project Blue Book from the History Channel, History.com, LiveScience.com, HowStuffWorks.com, The New York Times, and The Concord Monitor, which is a local uh, New Hampshire paper. Harry thought it was a monitor lizard that ate grapes. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> He's turning purple. Oh, did you hear about the iguanas in Florida? Freezing? Freezing and falling out of trees. I saw a, a, a warning article where it's like, do not approach. They're not, they may not be dead. Yeah, well, I'm like, oh, that sounds terrifying. There's another article that I read that said that you're supposed to kill the iguanas because they're an invasive species I'm and so are not con- native to Florida. Oh, Florida. I'm so confused for you. I know, right? Because <laughs> I don't remember iguanas being there when I was there. So. Me either. I can't wait to get to Florida. Yeah, I want to go back to Florida so bad. I don't want to live there, but I want to... Wonderful place to visit. Yes. All the oranges you can eat now. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, I guess uh, if listeners have any feelings about Catholic school or frozen iguanas or alien abductions, they can let us know by visiting our website, which we haven't plugged in a while. No, it's um, roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can also email us if you want to tell us your listener stories, if you want to send us cute pictures of your pets, because we haven't asked people to do that in a while, <laughs> other than on Facebook. And some people actually posted pictures. They're very cute. But you can email us with anything, feedback, whatever, at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Uh, speaking of Facebook, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, of course, at Roadside Horror Show. Uh, occasionally, we think about Twitter, and our Twitter <laughs> is Roadside Horror. I guess last but not certainly not least, I would like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our wonderful logo and E Massey for our delightful intro and outro music. And I think that's it. All right, Roadsters. Until next time. Creep, creep on, on creeping creepin on. on.